I'm reading about Martin Luther King from Oates. Oates' biography on page 48. Chapter entitled The Odyssey. King is now married um, and studying together with his wife. And I'm reading from the second paragraph on that page 48. He, King, was anxious about his sermon. Yes, he had preached plenty of times in Boston and Atlanta. But now he was on trial for his own job. How would he impress the Dexter congregation? Though a small church, Dexter counted mostly middle-class folk among its membership, and it had a long tradition of an educated ministry, which King liked. Should he give the Dexter people a display of scholarship or rely on inspiration from God's Spirit? Perhaps he recalled what he had written in a course on preaching back at Boston University. You don't preach knowledge. You use knowledge to preach. Finally, he told himself, keep Martin Luther King in the background and God in the foreground, and everything will be all right. Remember, you're a channel of the gospel, not the source. I think that is so great. That reminds me of the Matthew 6.33 scripture that says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Okay, let's read on. On Sunday morning, he stood at the pulpit of Dexter, surrounded by stained glass windows, and gazed out over a packed sanctuary. He preached on the three dimensions of a complete life, based on Revelation 21.16. Love yourself, if that means healthy self-respect. That is the length of life. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are commanded to do that. That is the breadth of life. But never forget that there is an even greater commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the height of life. The sermon was a great success. The members came up to congratulate him, the men to shake his hand and the women to fawn over him. He was just 25, hardly more than a boy to them, and just as smart and nice as he could be. Though reputed to be snooty and ice cold, they seemed to warm to King this Sunday. As the pulpit committee shepherded him around the church, he heard stories about former pastor Vernon Johns, a militant guy who had exhorted the congregation like a whirlwind to get involved in social issues. But people at Dexter were scared people who tended to accept the racial status quo. At some point that day, the pulpit committee asked King if he would accept a call to the pastorship. I'll give it my most prayerful and serious consideration, he said. He returned to Boston and in March 15, 1954 received a telegram from Dexter's pulpit committee informing him that he had been unanimously chosen as pastor. The church offered him an annual salary of $4,200, the highest of any Negro minister in Montgomery. The offer threw King into a quandary. He was prepared to forego an academic job and pastor for a few years to gain practical experience. But did he really want to live in the deep south with all its 
racial woes. Coretta was hardly enthusiastic about returning to the South, especially to Montgomery. After all, she had grown up near there and she knew what a rigidly segregated city it was. As it happened, King had a preaching engagement in Detroit that Sunday and on the flight out he sat by a window looking down at the sunlit clouds and brooding over his dilemma. He thought about how much and how long he had resented segregation. He recalled the episodes that had hurt him so, the white parents who would not let him play with their son because he was coloured, the white woman who had slapped him and called him a little nigger, the white bus driver who had called him a black son of a bitch, the waiter who had pulled the curtain around him in the dining car. He shifted in his seat, pained by the memories. Could he endure all that again? Could he endure all the whites only signs and the countless daily insults of being black in Dixie? He had never adjusted to separate accommodations because it did something to my sense of dignity and self-respect. Quote, unquote. Now, as the plane bore him toward Detroit, he thought, I have a chance to escape from the long night of segregation. Can I return to a society that condones a system I have abhorred since childhood. When he returned from Detroit, he talked the matter over with Coretta. They considered how difficult it would be to raise their children in the bonds of segregation and how inferior the education would be in the South in contrast to the North. Still, the South was their home and they loved it despite its racial difficulties. In fact, King had felt a driving desire to do something about them since his youth. Here was a chance to practice the social gospel among his own downtrodden people, to return home where he was needed. He believed, too, that Southern Negroes who received part of their education in the North ought to go back to the South and work to improve race relations there. After he had put in several years at Dexter's as Dexter's pastor, he could go into academy as Mays and his other mentors had done. On April 14, 1954, King accepted the Dexter offer with the stipulation that the church furnish the parsonage and grant him time and expenses to finish his PhD thesis. The church readily agreed. He would become official pastor in September in the meantime, commuting to Montgomery by plane. King now flew to Atlanta to deal with his father. Predictably, Daddy King was not happy about his boy's decision, not happy at all. Here he was, an associate pastor at Ebenezer, and marked out for pastorship one day. Why would he want to take over a little church like Dexter? Moreover, why would he want to live in Montgomery, where trouble with white folks was worse than in Atlanta. But young King would not be dissuaded. Patiently he heard his father out and then headed for Montgomery to preach his first sermon at Dexter's, as Dexter's pastor. He did so on a May Sunday in 1954. That same month the United States Supreme Court handed down an ep epochal decision that rocked 
the Jim Crow South to its foundations. In Brown versus Board of Education, the court outlawed segregated public schools, thus reversing the doctrine of separate but equal. That had prevailed since Plessy versus Ferguson's 58 years earlier. Separate education facilities are inherently unequal, the court ruled, and created a feeling of inferiority in Negro students that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. Thanks to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which had argued against school segregation before the court, American Negroes had won their most spectacular victory in this century. In one historic blow, the Supreme Court had smashed the whole legal superstructure for the idea of racial separateness, knocking down a century and a half of devious rationalizations in defense of the creed that blacks must be kept apart because they were inferior. King was elated with the decision. It seemed to betoken a speedy end to the hated Jim Crow system in which he had grown up. He pronounced the Brown case a world-shaking decree, a noble and sublime decision that would help right his troubled land with its own ideals. It seemed an auspicious time to be going home to the south, a time when good things seemed about to happen there. But then came the southern reaction. Across Dixie, segregationists raged at the tyrannical court, yeah, quote-unquote, and branded the day of the Brown decision as Black Monday. In Mississippi, a former football star named Tut Patterson stormed. There won't be any integration in Mississippi. Not now, not a hundred years from now. Maybe not six thousand years from now. Maybe never. And he helped from the South's first white citizens council to preserve the southern way of life. Meanwhile, fiery crosses burned against Texas and Florida skies and random clan terrorism broke out against blacks in many parts of Dixie. In Georgia, a gubernatorial candidate stood in 90 degree heat and expounded his three school plan to defeat integration, one for whites, another for colored, the way they wanted, and a third for those insane enough to want their children into, in integrated schools. In Montgomery, Alabama, the state board of education voted unanimously to continue segregated facilities through the 1954-55 school year, and the state legislature nullified the court decision vowing to preserve white supremacy come what may. With the white South mobilizing against school desegregation, King took Coretta down to Montgomery to show her the church and the parsonage and to tour the Negro section where they would have to live. It was truly another world from Boston. With failing sorry, with falling hearts they saw black people riding in the backs of buses, realized that Coretta would have to sit there to if she wanted to shop while he had the car. 
Greta, who had wanted badly to remain in the north, tried to be brave. If this is what you want, she told King, I'll make myself happy in Montgomery. It was what he wanted, but he had no idea whether they could ever be happy there. Here ends the chapter entitled The Odyssey. The next section is part two on the stage of history. I'm reading out of um, Martin Luther King part two in the biography by Stephen Oates. This part is entitled On the Stage of History. The parsonage stood on a shaded street in a Negro district several blocks southwest of the capital. So King has just got a new job as a pastor in the south of America with his wife. He's married now. It was a white frame house with seven rooms and a railed-in front porch and tall oaks hovered about it like sentries. Inside the pastor's wife had added personal touches to the furnishings provided by the church. A television set and a baby grand piano resided in the living room. Wow. Two African heads hung on the wall there and West Indian gourds and art pieces decorated the mantel above the clothes-in fireplace. I wonder if Coretta and King had put those there if they'd been there already. Each morning the young pastor arose at 5.30, made coffee and went through the painful ordeal of shaving. Because his whiskers were tough and ingrown, he could only remove them with an old-fashioned English straight razor and a special shaving powder that gave off a terrible odor. The face in the mirror had a neat moustache, now small, ears and immaculately clipped hair, and lit up in a boyish grin when he remembered something humorous. Ready for the day, he scheduled himself in a book-lined den. Sorry, he secluded. <laughs> he secluded himself in a book-lined den with its scholarly disarray and wrote for three hours on his thesis. At nine he breakfasted with his wife and then drove downtown to Dexter Church. He felt a special fondness for the old red brick church with its twin doorway lamps and bell tower. It stood on the corner with an aura of unembellished dignity. Unintimidated by the white government buildings that loomed across the street. Here the young pastor ministered to the brothers and sisters of his congregation who came to him with all manner of spiritual and secular needs. He served as their character witness, negotiated with whites in their behalf, married and buried them. He cautioned any Negro who harbored violent impulses that the strong man was the man who could stand up without striking anybody. I wonder if King's reading Gandhi yet at this stage. He counseled couples with marital troubles that may that maybe they could not get along because they didn't understand one another and were afraid 
They must get behind appearances, he said. Must discover the meaning of soul beauty before they can really discover the meaning of love. For him, divorce was a court of last resort. But if it was unavoidable, he would do what he could to help both parties adjust to this unfortunate break in their marriage. He also did what he could for unwedded young mothers, but it is always a frustrating experience, he said, of the problem. I feel so helpless. When the parents of such a girl came to him, he would explain that her emotions are fraught with deep hurt, shame and pride. Hurt because the boy does not want to share the same responsibility as she is sharing. Shame because she feels that she has done something that society looks down upon. But he did not encourage a forced marriage because the baby would be the victim of a set of parents who did not love each other and would probably be brought up in an atmosphere of strife and tension which would play more havoc on its personality than if it had to face the fact that it had no legal father. It was best that baby receive a double amount of love from its mother and her relatives. Still, he was never satisfied with such advice, and when the opportunity came, he joined a committee of the Planned Parenthood Federation, which disseminated literature on unwanted pregnancies. At prescribed hours during the week, he closed his office door and devoted himself to a sermon for the next Sunday. On Tuesday, he would sketch an outline. On Wednesday, do research and decide what illustrations and life situations to use. And on Friday and Saturday, write the sermon on lined yellow pages. His breadth and historical references might range from Plato, Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas to Alfred the Great, Thomas Carlyle, James Russell, Lowell, Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, Niebuhr, Freud and Gandhi. Oh, so he's already very widely read. Then on Sunday he would preach without notes for 35 to 40 minutes, quite as though he were extemporizing, and his congregation would clap and cry in appreciation. At first his sermon tended to be sober and intellectual, but sorry, like a classroom lecture, but he came to understand the emotional role of the Negro church. To realize how much black folk needed this precious sanctuary to vent their frustrations and let themselves go. And so he let himself go. The first amen from his congregation would set him to whooping with some old-fashioned fireworks in which he made his intellectual points with dazzling oratory. For what was good preaching if not a mixture of emotion and intellect? As a preacher in his own right, free from entanglements, with his father, King learned to appreciate the Southern Negro Church as never before. Here in their church, the only place that was truly their own, black people could feel free of the white man, free of Jim Crow, free of everything. Here they could be spiritually reborn and emotionally uplifted, exhorting their preacher as he in turn exhorted them, both engaging in a call-and-response dialogue that went back to their African ancestry. 
And young king, observing this at Dexter, seeing now what he had been blinded to in his youth, became a master at call and response exhortation. And I tell you, tell a doctor, that any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men, well or right, and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, amen, brother, and the social conditions that cripple them, oh yes, is a dry-as-dust religion. Well, religion deals with both heaven and earth. Yes. Time and eternity. Uh-huh. Seeking not only to integrate man with God. Clapping, clapping. But man with man. His congregation adored him. He was suave, oratorical, and persuasive, said one member. And he was such a young man to be so smart and confident. You mean that little boy is my pastor? Said one woman the first time she saw him. He looks like he ought to be home with his mama. In truth, women members tended to mother him. For them he was an idealized son, so educated, charming and handsome. I love Dr. King like my own son. Said one elderly matron. His own mother couldn't possibly love him any more than I do. His reputation as a preacher spread beyond Montgomery and invitations to speak fell on his desk from as far away as Pennsylvania. I understand you are developing into a good preacher in your own right, a family friend wrote him. Remain careful of your conduct. Steer away from trashy preachers. Be worthy of the best. It may come to you someday. The friend teased Dirty King. They tell me you have a son that can preach rings around you any day. You send the pulpit. How about that? If it is so, it is a compliment to you. Every way I turn, people are congratulating me for you, Dirty King wrote in December. You see, young man, you are becoming very popular. As I told you, you must be much in prayer. Persons like yourself are the ones the devil turns all of his forces loose to destroy. Determined to practice what he preached, King launched an ambitious social action program in Dexter. Under his supervision, committees formed to tend the sick and needy, help artists with promise, and administer the scholarship funds for high school graduates. At the same time, a social and political action committee held forums on political developments and kept members appraised of NAACP activity in Dixie. Soon Dexter was contributing more to the NAACP than any other Negro church in town. Within a year, King had earned himself a reputation as a social activist. He was elected to the executive committee of the NAACP's 
Montgomery chapter comprising mostly professional and business people whose incomes were independent of whites and who had little, little fear of economic reprisals for their radical NAACP work. King also belonged to the Alabama Council on Human Relations, the only interracial group in town. But he observed that overall the vital liaison between Negroes and whites was totally lacking. There was not even a ministerial alliance to bring white and colored clergymen together. It was clear why. White people wanted no contact on an equal basis with blacks. In this complacent deep south city, 90,000 whites and 50,000 Negroes largely went their separate ways, kept apart by a rigid racial caste system that relegated Negroes to the gutters of the social order. A local statute even forbade blacks and whites to play cards, dice, checkers or dominoes together. Yet the two races entered inexorably into one another's lives. Most black adults, for instance, toiled as maids and menials in white homes, public accommodations and other businesses. Montgomery whites, of course, told themselves that our niggers are happy and don't want integration. In their barber shops and beauty salons, their clubs and restaurants, white folks damned integration as the work of communists. Called the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of the Communist Party, and denounced the U.S. Supreme Court as a tool of Moscow. They expected niggers to know their place and the mass of them to stay away from the polls and out of politics. To King's dismay, most local Negroes accepted all this with appalling apathy. The majority of educated blacks seemed complacent and terribly afraid of angering the white man. And domestics and day laborers seemed as passive as stone. Some of them, King understood, feared white retaliation if they stood up to the system. But many others suffered from a corroding sense of inferiority, which often expressed itself in a lack of self-respect. As a consequence, many poor Negroes really did think themselves inferior, really did think they belonged in the gutters of Southern life. And then there were the black preachers, historically the natural leaders of the Negro community. There were 50 Negro churches in and around Montgomery, and yet most of their pastors practiced dry-as-dust religion contending that their job was to get people into heaven, not change things down here. What a defeatist and distressing attitude this was. Yet the attitudes of the activist leadership troubled King too. There was, he noted, an appalling lack of unity among the leaders, as too many 
committees worked at cross purposes and without cooperation, which resulted in a crippling factionalism. About the only thing the black leadership seemed to agree on was the need to observe Emancipation Day on January the 1st, when prominent Negroes would talk eloquently about Lincoln and Negro rights and then do nothing about gaining them. As King surveyed Montgomery's divided and phlegmatic Negro community, he doubted that meaningful social reform could ever occur in this old Confederate city. Still, his social activism was not without rewards. He became fast friends with Ralph Abernathy, pastor of the First Baptist Church and an activist preacher too. Socializing together in their churches and homes, they and their wives talked about building a new Christian order somehow, someday. Now 29, four years older than King, Abernathy was short and stocky with the wily charm of a handshaking black belt politician. As an acquaintance later put it, he was born in Black Belt, Marengo County, about 90 miles southwest of Montgomery, and was one of 12 children from a sharecropping family with mixed blood ancestry. Abernathy tickled people with stories about his first goggle-eyed and breathless visits to near by Selma, the biggest town he'd ever seen as a boy. He jocularly called himself the barefoot boy from Marengo County. His father was a proud, perceptive man who realized that a Negro had to own his land before he could be free of whites. Plowing the white man's field all day, he saved money so that he could buy his own. Once he did, he became one of the leading black citizens of the county. He was a church deacon and the first Negro there to vote and serve on a grand jury. He also built the county's first Negro school and furnished its firewood himself. He was soon so prosperous that he had black tenants working in his, working his own place. But he died when Abernathy was 16. A shattering loss from which Abernathy never fully recovered. Behind his witty unruffled facade, Abernathy was an extremely sensitive man who needed recognition and approval. Yet he never forgot two things his father always told him. That if ever I saw a fight to get in it, and that preaching was a job of a man and not a boy. Unlike King, he had come to the ministry by way of Negro schools in the South. Alabama State in Montgomery and Atlanta University. To a lot of people, King and Abernathy seemed an odd pair. Largely northern educated and a scion of Atlanta's black middle class, King was learned, fastidious and urbane. Abernathy, by contrast, came from a bucolic background and was so slow and earthy that some thought him crude. 
How could two such dissimilar individuals become friends? The truth was that they complemented one another, each providing something the other needed. In King's friendship, Abernathy found an acceptance he yearned for, the acceptance of a brilliant and educated member of the black middle class. In Abernathy, King found a country boy who had risen from an impoverished background and had earned his right to champion Negro improvement. In point of fact, Abernathy personified Negro improvement, and King, who was born into a privileged Negro life, felt something special in the companionship of a man who had worked his way up to King's position entirely on his own. Even their styles were complementary. King would strike a deft, graceful jab, one observer said, while Abernathy slugged and walloped. What was more, the two men shared a keen sense of humour. Friends recalled how they could cut up at the dinner table swapping jokes until they had each other and everyone else in tears. I declare, one woman told them, you two could be on stage. King, for his part, was an expert at mimicking other preachers, recounting their follies in one hilarious parody after another. Once during a birthday party, he and Abernathy took to the floor to imitate a swinging gospel show that came over the radio. They dedicated their first number to Miss Coretta King, a dear sister over there in Montgomery, and swayed and pranced about arm in arm, slurring their words and singing off-key until they collapsed from laughter. And so King passed his first year in Montgomery, fraternizing with Abernathy, tending his flock, getting involved in life's adversities. Over the winter, he completed his thesis, a comparison of the conception of God in the thinking of Paul Tillich and Henry Nelson Veman, and successfully defended it at Boston University. He received his doctorate at the end of the spring term in 1955. DeWolf pronounced the thesis quite a searching philosophical and theological study. A difficult comparison ably done. Later, King preached to an interracial congregation in Boston with his former teachers from the Boston University of Theology sitting in the front row of the balcony. He called them by name one by one. A white woman remembered. He thanked them individually, told them how much he owed them, how he would never have been where he was without them, how grateful he was for their loving concern. King reached another milestone in the spring of 1955, Coretta broke the news that he was going to be a father. There had been some question as to whether they could have children, and King had vowed to adopt if they could not. Now he was beaming. He wanted eight children before they were through. He gushed. We'll compromise and have four, Coretta said. King hoped the baby would be a boy. If it were, he would christen him Martin Luther King the third